This is Dylan FM, a freak music club podcast on Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place. This season, we're going deep on Time Out of Mind to celebrate its 25th anniversary. Here's your host, Craig Danielov. A new bootleg series is like an excellent Christmas morning for Bob Dylan fans. We get a shiny new present, it's just what we wanted, and yet it's full of mystery, surprise, and wonder. This year, Christmas came in late January with the Fragments box set from the Time Out of Mind sessions. And our guest today, like our guest last week, was one of Santa's little elves who worked to make this wonderful gift possible for all of us. Stephen Hyden wrote the liner notes, or more precisely, half the liner notes, for the bootleg series, Volume 17. Historian Douglas Brinkley wrote the context piece, sharing facts and observations about the making of the record and the songs it contains. And Haydn wrote the impact piece, sharing his thoughts on what the record meant to the world, to Dylan, and to himself. Stephen Haydn is a highly respected music writer who recently published a book called The Long Road on Pearl Jam, and is the author of two music books that make a lot of favorites lists, Your Favorite Band is Killing Me and Twilight of the Gods. He writes regularly at Uproxx, where he's officially the cultural critic, and he has a new Bob Dylan podcast focusing on live shows from the never-ending tour called Never Ending Stories. Links to his books, articles, and the podcast are in the show notes. You'll definitely want to check them out. But outside of his professional credentials, Stephen Hyden is a Bob Dylan fanatic. He writes about and tells us today how he came of age and got deeply into Dylan right around the time of Time Out of Mind. And that's one of the reasons he was asked to contribute these liner notes. His essay, which hopefully you've read, and if you don't have the CD or the vinyl box, then maybe ask around and someone can help you with the PDF file. It talks about how Dylan was positioned and perceived in the media around 1997 and how that narrative didn't exactly align with reality, and how 25 years has utterly destroyed the popular assumptions of the time. In this conversation, we talk about how Stephen got the gig, what he was asked to do, and his thoughts on summing up 60 years of Bob Dylan. We talk about what it meant at the time for a 55-year-old to make this album, and the role Daniel Lenoir played, plus what the new mix and the outtakes say about the album. And we get his thoughts on the live tracks that are included, the future of the bootleg series, and more. If you're hearing this, you're on the public feed of our podcast. Premium members get an extended version of our shows, and in the case of this show, that's about 40 minutes of extra conversation, as well as the option to watch the video of the interview, which I would recommend. Check the show notes for details about getting the premium feed. You'll get access to over 20 interviews about Time Out of Mind, and the videos if you want to watch those. And as a member, you'll be able to listen to those longer episodes right in your current favorite podcast player. We have no advertising, so it's your support that makes this possible. And now, if you don't want to join, but do want to help, there's a tip link in the show notes. You can toss us a buck or three, or whatever works for you. And now, here's our discussion with Stephen Hyden about his liner notes for the new Fragments Bob Dylan Bootleg Series. Steve Hyden, thanks. Welcome to Dylan FM, and thanks for coming to talk about Fragments, the bootleg series, and your great liner notes. Well, thanks for having me. So, how'd you get the gig? I mean, 
Bob called you up and asked if you had a little time? No, fortunately, Bob didn't reach out. There's this uh, guy named Jeffrey Schulberg, who's an executive at, at Sony Music, and we've uh, corresponded a bit over the years. And I, I think it started because I, I wrote a column ranking my like, all the Dylan records. It was like a 10,000-word column, really went in-depth. And I think he liked that piece, and then you know he would email me from time to time. And, and then uh, about a year ago, it was like early 2022. Actually, it was late 2021, I think. He reached out, and he was like, we're doing a box set for Time Out of Mind. And there's this idea that we'd like one of the writers to be a little younger, which I'm not young, I'm 45, but, you know, by the standards of like Dylan writers, you know, they wanted someone who was young, like when Time Out of Mind came out. And he thought, and he asked like, would you want to do that? And I said, absolutely. And he's like, well, can you put together a little pitch for what you'd want to write? And we'll send it to Jeff Rosen. We'll hear, you know, we'll see what he thinks. So that's what I did. And, and Jeff liked the approach. And that was that. And uh, I wrote my uh, essay, I think it was like in February or March of 2022. And then there was such a big lead time because of vinyl pressing. So like, so anyway, what I wrote it, like, it was like a long time ago, like it was fun getting the box set last week, because I had forgotten like what I had even said about about the album uh so yeah it's been a long time coming but it, it looks great and i'm very proud to be a part of it i mean this album in particular was really big for me it came out when i was 19 it was the first event bob dylan album of of my lifetime um and i write about this in the essay you know i i really think that that record was the album that made him a contemporary music figure again you know i i think before that album he had he was basically defined as you know the voice of a generation from the 60s protest singer the guy who plugged in at newport you know all the cliches about bob dylan that was really how he was defined and then from time out of mind on you know it, it was really looking at each new album as a big deal you know in a way that I don't know that there's anyone of his generation that you would say the same of, you know, like right. the new album might be like you go into a new album thinking this could be one of his best albums, you know, like there's no one I think from his generation really that has that same kind of stature. And so in my notes, I, I trace that back to time out of mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in, in an incredible arc, it's, it's a big turning point for sure. So you've written, books you've written all kinds of columns you're a podcaster have you done liner notes before yeah i um done it a few times the first ones i did were uh for being there the the wilco album when they reissued that uh forget when that was you know probably mid 2010s so that was the first big one i did i wrote liners for um jerry garcia band like the live record when that was reissued on vinyl I did liner notes for a Thin Lizzy record, Jailbreak. Uh, but this is the biggest one, for sure. Uh, and 
again, I mean, to have my name inside of a Bob Dylan record, that's like one of the proudest things of my career. Uh, yeah, it's it, it's definitely a big deal. You know, even though I know most people are just going to stream this album, you know, or if they buy the set, they may not even read the liner notes, but I know they're in there. So it yeah. makes me happy. I was going to ask you how you thought about the function of liner notes. Um, you know, I'm a traditionalist, so I love liner notes. And uh, especially for something like this, uh, you know, the bootleg series has such a great um, tradition. And even if you want to include Biograph in there, too, which isn't a bootleg series release, but it was the first big Bob Dylan box set and like Cameron Crowe, um, you know, interviewing Bob. And there's like a lot of cool things in, in those liner notes, too. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think for someone like Dylan specifically, you know, it's like, I mean, I made a joke about this a, a second ago that most people are just going to stream the record. but. I do know that with someone like Bob Dylan, there actually probably will be more people reading the liner notes than there would be for an average release, you know, just because Bob fans are so obsessive and they're going to seek things out. And I tried not to think about that too much because you don't want to psych yourself out too much, like knowing that every expert who posts on expecting rain is going to be reading this and judging me based on their own extensive knowledge of Bob Dylan. Um, I don't know. I really just tried to take more of a personal approach with what I wrote. And that, I think that was something that they were looking for too. Cause you know, for, for those who haven't gotten the box set yet, there's also an essay by Douglas Brinkley, who is a well-known historian and, and he does more of the sort of blow by blow talking about each song and like, how there's like lyrical differences on different takes on the record. Whereas mine is more of like a, you know, I was 19 in 1997 when this came out and this was a record that meant maybe something different to people who were young versus people who had grown up with Bob Dylan. And uh, I feel like that's a pretty common experience. Like I know I'm not alone uh, in having experienced the record that way. And, you know, and I've heard from people who have, who have said as much to me. So, you know, hopefully that'll be a valuable, uh, you know, bit of uh, commentary, you know, that people appreciate with this record. Yeah. One thing your notes made me think about was that, which, you know, comes up, but I hadn't really drilled on it so much, was this idea of when each of us comes into the Bob Dylan story, you know, given that it's 60 years long and some people were there from the beginning, but others weren't. And you you describe your process of, you know, at, at 19, coming around, you know, being familiar with him, not so deep, all of a sudden going deep, then time out of mind comes out. But people have to rearrange that history themselves and make sense of it. And yeah. it, it takes a long time. You know, I've told the story before. I started a bit earlier than you, but I wasn't hardcore. And then by the time 90, 95 came along, I saw a bunch of shows, but I still I knew I didn't have the timeline right. I didn't know the names of the songs yet. I didn't know, you know, this is the 60s and that's 70s and that's 80s. It just takes a while to draw the map. But how that affects your relationship with Bob is what I really never thought about. And and you sort of brought that up in an interesting way. Yeah, I mean, I think um, there is something to be said about experiencing a artist's work as it's coming out in a linear chronological fashion and just how that 
influences how you hear the new work. And, you know, in 1997, the history of Dylan's career, the narrative of Dylan's career was, was, you know, written by people who had come up with him. And when you have that perspective, inevitably the early work is going to shine brighter than stuff that comes later because where that person was in their life when they heard those records, like they were different too. They were experiencing the world and things were fresher for them uh, as well. So like, yeah, if you were 18 when Blonde on Blonde came out, I mean, that uh, sort of correlation there, that's that's of course going to shape how you hear that record. And it's not going to be the same feeling when you hear Infidels in your, you know, mid thirties. And what's different for someone who comes to this work later, and this was true for me in 97, you know, cause like, as you said, you know, when I was a younger teenager, I was certainly aware of Bob Dylan, but I couldn't make heads or tails of his songs. I mean, they were really long. There were a ton of words, you know, the voice was weird. Yeah. You know, it's like, I know this is important, but I, I, I don't really get it. Like I'm not connecting with it. And then around the age of 18, 19, there was like a like a lightning bolt hit me and everything just clicked into place and not only did i understand it but it was the only thing that i wanted to listen to like i was obsessed with bob dylan and anytime i got a paycheck from you know the part-time job i was working i would just go to the record store and i would buy three or four cds you know and i was buying records from all the different eras so I wasn't listening to it chronologically. It'd be like, well, here's Desire and uh, here's uh, Saved and here's another side of Bob Dylan. And you're listening to all these different eras at the same time. And that old narrative about Bob Dylan that was written by sort of the original fans, it starts to break down a little bit. And not to say that one approach is better than the other, but you know, when I talk to younger Bob Dylan fans, you know, they dig the records that when I was growing up, people said were garbage. <laughs> you know, like when I was first reading about Bob Dylan, it'd be like, don't even bother listening to Street Legal because that album is terrible. Right. You know, don't even bother with the Christian era because that stuff right. is awful. And now it's like, <clears throat> you know, obviously the 60s stuff is great, but you go to Street Legal at some point in your life and you're like, what? This album is great. Changing of the Guards and, you know, uh, Journey Through Dark Heat, like all, you know, there's so many great songs here. Like, whoa, whoa, who in the world would say this record's bad? You know, there's so many instances of that, I feel like, with, with Dylan. Um, and then you get to the point where you're so obsessed with him that even the records you don't really like are still really interesting because it's like, well, what, what was he thinking when he made Down in the Groove? Like, what in the world was going through his mind? I'm going to listen to this record a hundred times so I could figure it out because in a way that's more interesting than listening to the albums that everyone already knows are great. Like I want to get to the bottom of this record that maybe is misunderstood. Yeah. At the same time, you find out that while he's making down in the groove, you know, he's on the road with Petty or he's doing these right. other things that completely belie, you know, this narrative. Right. Because exactly. there's, there's way more than one thing going on. I, and, you, you had a line in there about, about time out of mind where you say that passage of time has utterly confounded you know, that story at the time. And I thought that 
I think that happens a lot with Bob, right? I mean, everything you just said about, you know, street legal is no good or the Christian parade is no good is sort of this compacting way to tell a story. First of all, it's relativism. You, you know, you also point out the other, one of my things I repeat all the time about Bob asking not to be compared to himself, right? Right. Because if you take street legal or shot of love or, you know, whatever, compare it, that album to almost anyone else, he's ahead. So he has to live in all these boxes inside of boxes. And then you get to the details and you go, oh, that that summary was way off. It was, well, it was convenient. Well, and also like we have the luxury of, like when you come to an artist like this, who already has a big body of work. And you know, when I came to him in the nineties, he already had a big body of work. There is a luxury to having access to all of it at the same time. Like I get somebody in 1978 who's been waiting a few years for a new Bob Dylan record. And then you get street legal and you're like, what in the hell is this? Like the, this, the, you know, this, like that album is so dense lyrically and you know, there's just like metaphors on top of metaphors. And now there's saxophone on Dylan records. Like, why is this here? I mean, I can get someone who's had to wait two years for a Dylan record and it maybe not being what they would expect and then just rejecting it right away. I, I, I think that's like a fairly natural reaction for people who are experiencing this in real time. Whereas we get to go back as a younger Dylan fan. I say we, the royal we, for people who are like me or you who came later, uh, where you can be like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hearing all these records sort of at the same time or as a body of work. I can understand like how this connects, you know, the desire era to the Christian era and all these things that maybe aren't apparent in the moment, but you can see later on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, the funny thing with Time Out of Mind to me, and people forget this with Dylan, is that he had been given a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Grammys six years before that record came out. You know, he wasn't even 50 years old when he got a Lifetime Achievement Award. And it just speaks to how people thought he was done. You know, like you don't give someone a Lifetime Achievement Award if you expect them to keep putting out great records for like 30 more years. You know, you do it because you're like, okay, you've, you've done your thing. You're not, now you're just going to fade away. You're going to be like an oldies act. And, uh, you know, just knowing that it just adds another layer, I think, to that record about how it was kind of a miracle that he made a record that good. And then in the eyes of many people, he topped it, you know, going into the 2000s. Um, but yeah, I, I, that, that still kind of makes me laugh a bit that, you know, Time Out of Mind was like this sort of, you know, looked at as this mortality record or this like career capstone record. And now in the chronology of his career, it's like kind of like a mid-career masterwork now, you know, like, like people want to call it a late career work still, but it's like, it's 25 years ago, you know, <laughs> he's like continued putting out records. So it's, it's like literally in the middle of his career at this point now. Yeah, I actually wanted to talk about this. You start with this idea of the mortality record and you end with it. Um, you know, the, the narratives that seemed true at the time and, and what we've learned, you know, and even what 
fragments reveals, right? The songs, you know, are presented in ways that aren't slow and gloomy and morose. You know, so we get a view of the songs. I, I made a playlist of the what I called the strummers. So sort of the first week in Miami before Lenoir's production was there, before Dylan slowed down when you're still in these mixes hearing strings and things you're not hearing. And I don't think the narrative we got would have came. I don't know that should have been released, but if it would have, you know, it wasn't baked in the songs. I mean, the lyrics are the lyrics. Anyway, let, just, let's just talk about that, the, what the narrative was and, and how you think either time or this release, you know, shifts it. Well, you know, certainly the, the mood of the record is very melancholy and there's something that Lanois heard in those songs that caused him to really layer on the atmospherics with this record. Um, which, by the way, I just want to say I love the original production. I'm a Daniel Lanois fan. Absolutely, yeah. I really love what he brought to the record. The thing with Bob is that you know, obviously the Jack Frost era begins after this, but like even before, uh, you know, like back in the 60s and 70s, it seems like he was basically his own producer. You know, like someone like Bob Johnson, for instance, my sense from like what I've read is that he was basically a guy to press record, you know, like he wasn't going to tell Bob what to do. And that's probably why Bob liked him because, you know, he didn't want someone to make him record over and over again or to do fancy overdubbing or he just like wanted to go in, knock out the songs with relative quickness and time out of mind, even more than Oh Mercy, I think is like the one record where Lanois, he isn't the co-star of that album, but he is a major presence on that record more than any other producer, like by far in, in, in Dylan's career. And I'm sure just that alone probably irritated Bob. Again, I'm totally speculating here, but just it, my sense is that to have someone else making such an impact on the music, that's not him. Um, and and Lanois getting a lot of credit for that too in the moment. But my sense is that that maybe irked him. <laughs> and that's how you end up with this remix, which I, and I love the remix too. I love having this version and you can c contrast and compare. It's just like another thing to dive into with Dylan. Um, but getting back to the mortality thing, I think the other thing, which again is maybe people forget now, but in 1997, like 56 was pretty old for a rock star. You know, like that original, you know, you, you have the 50s rockers, obviously, who are a little bit older. But, you know, you didn't have 80-year-old rock stars, really, in, in 1997. So, like, I remember I saw the Rolling Stones for the first time a few years before that uh, on the Voodoo Lounge Tour. And my assumption at the time was that I have to see the Stones now because there's no way they're going to tour after this. These guys are, like, in their 50s. Like, there's no way these guys can tour. And here we are 30 and years like, later. And someone like the Stones... As other people have pointed out, if they were making albums, they weren't acting their age. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, like Mick Jagger, and God love him for this, but like his whole thing is like, I can move as well as I did in 1969. And yeah, my face is more wrinkled, but, you know, I, I still have this like weird alien body that can like twist and run around stages, you know, and I don't know how much cardio and yoga that guy does to stay in shape but it's pretty incredible but yeah like dylan 
you know, has never done that. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously in good shape. I don't mean that. I just mean, you know, he sounded like an old guy. And yeah, he found a way to, you know, to embrace it. And then the other thing, yeah. and, and you obviously point this out, is that, you know, we had the, the, uh, the, the cardiac issue right before, which gave the press. I mean, I've also heard people say that, coincidentally, it set Bob up for the press to, you know, have a reason to shine him and put him up there because he gave them what they want, which is a super dramatic story, even if it was accidental, coincidental, and but it framed this in a way that, you know, maybe got him more coverage, more front pages, more things with even as good as this album was that he would have got if that hadn't happened. Yeah. I mean, yeah, don't underestimate the power of a good narrative hook. I mean, I'm, I'm someone who works in music writing and I can say that, you know, music journalists and critics, we're all lazy people. We like it when you just give us the angle that we need to write about a record. And Bob's health problems, it was an obvious hook. You know, this guy almost died. And now he's here with this spooky record where he's saying it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. And he's trying to get to heaven before they close the door and all this stuff. It just becomes an irresistible uh, hook for people. But I do think it is mostly about the music like if this was a mediocre record you know that would have been a cute way to get in the door but we still wouldn't be talking about it now and and again i think that part of the power of the record was that bob was not making a record that sounded like he was just trying to do what he did in the 60s you know which is i think what a lot of older musicians do when they have their comeback record, they make the record where they're like, well, this that's is all we have time for on this episode, but our discussion continues for another 40 minutes. See the show notes for a link you can use to upgrade and immediately get both the longer version and access to the video. Here's a sample of some of the extended conversation. I love the production, but I know a lot of people don't. And I understand why they don't because he's way more heavy handed than any other producer. Again, like I was already a Dylan fan when time out of mind came out, but what time out of mind did for me was say, Oh, I have to care about the new records now too. And it's kind of funny because after time out of mind, I feel like Bob took that away from Neil Young. Rosen was like, just write whatever you want. The fact that he would have been inspired by the death of Jerry Garcia, like that's not something I remember hearing about. It, it's almost like there's no individual part. It's almost just like one big ball of sound. And on the new mix, you can break it down easy. I made a personal appeal to do a never-ending uh, tour box set. And uh, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Like a song like, you know, like Standing in the Doorway, I love the new mixed version, but it doesn't have the same uh, mystery that the Time Out of Mind cut does. Dylan records that during a time in my life, maybe I thought, oh, this album's not any good. And then like 10 years later, I listened to it again and I'm like, it's amazing. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast. It really helps. For bonus episodes and more, Become a member at freakmusic.club slash join. And you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at FMC underscore Dylan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.